Hello, and welcome to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it comes from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. So this week is Johann Jakob Rambach. He was born in Halle on the Salle, that's the river that it's on, in 1693. So that is a city in eastern Germany. He was the son of Hans Jakob Rambach, who is a cabinet maker. In 1706, he left school and entered his father's workshop, but in the autumn of 1707, he dislocated his ankle. So during this time, he returned back to school and rekindled his desire for learning. And then as he recovered in 1708, he entered the Latin school at Halle under the pietist August Hermann Frank. We are going to be talking a little bit about pietism in the second half of this. Just know that he studied under August Hermann Frank. That will become important. So in 1712, he matriculated at the University of Halle as a student of medicine, but soon turned his attention to theology. He became especially interested in the study of Old Testament under J.H. Michaelis, and in 1715, he became one of Michaelis's assistants in preparing his edition of the Hebrew Bible. And he actually wrote a commentary on Ruth, Esther, and Nehemiah. So his health began to suffer in the spring of 1719, and then he accepted an invitation of Count von Heuckel to stay at Palzig near Ronneburg, where he spent several months trying to recover. So by August, he had recovered and then paid a visit to uh, Jena, or Jena, where a number of students there asked him to lecture, and he settled there. Uh, in 1719, and lived in the house of Professor Budius, which is the Latin version of J.F. Buddha, and he graduated with an M.A. in March of 1720. In 1723, he was appointed adjunct of the theological faculty at Halle, and also as inspector of the orphanage. In 1726, he became extraordinary professor of theology, and in 1727, after Frank's death, his old teacher, um, August Frank's death, he became ordinary professor, as well as the preacher at Schulkirche. If you're wondering about extraordinary versus ordinary professorships, in Germany, at least at this time, now they've changed their terminology, but in Germany at this time, Extraordinary professors do not have a chair, if you're familiar with chaired positions. They do not have a chair. In other words, they are in a side area or working alongside and helping a chaired professor. However, an ordinary professor does have a chair and is part of the main faculty of that discipline at the school. 
So extraordinary to ordinary was a step up in that system. So at Schulkirche, he was very popular, both as the preacher and professor, but then in some jealousy issues and conflicts with his colleagues, he accepted an offer from the landgrave Ernest Ludwig of Hesse, who, in 1731, had invited him to Gießen as a superintendent and first professor of theology. Uh, just a side note, before he left Halle, he did graduate with a doctorate of divinity in 1731 as well. So if you're wondering about Landgrave, this is a title for German princes. It's equivalent to something perhaps like a duke, if you're thinking in English terms. So in 1732, Ernest Ludwig of Hesse appointed him also director of the Pedagogium at Gessen. And in 1734, he accepted the offer of the first professorship of theology in the, at the time, newly founded University of Göttingen. But surprisingly, at the request of the Landgrave, of Ernest Ludwig, he remained at Gessen, where he died of a fever in 1735, so just a year later. In that 20-year time span... He was a prolific author. He wrote many treatises, books. He was very big into writing hymns as well. So there are a lot of things written in both German and Latin by Rombach. And you can honestly find most of these online in uh, archives, especially if you look at the German National Archives and university archives. So, next I will get into his method of biblical interpretation, but first, let's take a quick break. start off his biblical hermeneutics, let me say that Rombach was a Lutheran and specifically within the Pietist movement. This is important to his hermeneutic style, and for those of us who are not Lutheran and don't live in Germany, this might be an obscure movement. So traditional Lutheran theology is built upon literal interpretations of the Bible, especially at the time that Rombach lived. Debates about minor points of theology were super important, and even small disagreements would get people labeled as heretics or at least outside of traditional Lutheran orthodoxy. Well, the Pietist groups were not fans of this. Their concern wasn't so much that doctrines and details don't matter, 
but really that the church had started using doctrinal statements to outweigh personal piety. They saw these debates and doctrinal teachings as replacing personal faith and moral living. So, outside of all of that, which is important in the life of Rombach, there are some really distinct things that they did theologically. So, the Pietists had this way of reading the biblical text in mystical senses. For Lutherans, and again, especially during his time, the Bible created dogma, and this was directly from the plain meaning of the text. Some of this you could say was inherited from Luther and his idea of translating it into the German so that everyone could read it and get the plain, direct, clear sense of what the Bible was saying. So the Pietists were attempting not only to read that plain sense, but to connect more dots. They tried to apply deeper significance to the scripture than what could be plainly read. And this is where Rombach's hermeneutic is going to fit in really well. You're going to hear me use the word hermeneutic. If you are not familiar with that, let's say you haven't taken your intro Bible classes, hermeneutics is just the method for interpreting scripture. So if I say hermeneutics, I'm meeting his methodology for biblical interpretation. So let me just start out with an example of this mystical, deeper meaning from Rombach himself. So Numbers 21, 4 through 9 is a very strange story that I will read just in whole. And this takes place during the exodus from Egypt. So in Numbers 21, the Israelites are wandering around in the desert at this point, having left their bondage in Egypt under Moses' rule. So, quote, They set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient because of the journey. So the people spoke against God and Moses, why have you brought us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we are disgusted with this miserable food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, because we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Intercede with the Lord that he will remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent, put it on a pole, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten and looks at it will live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on the pole, and it came about that if a serpent bit someone and he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. End quote. So, Rombach's interpretation of this is both literal and mystical. Rombach insists that this literally took place, his Latin term sensus literalis. Underneath this factual occurrence, however, something else is prophesied or indicated, namely, that the Son of Man would be lifted up on the cross as Christ himself explains this passage in John 3, 14. 
This is the sensus mysticus, the mystical sense. Now, let me be clear. Rambach was not the first theologian to look for these mystical meanings. And honestly, not even the first Lutheran. Salomon Glass, Johann Arndt, and Valerius Herberger were Lutherans doing this a century earlier. Rambach cited them among other theologians from Roman Catholic and Reformed traditions. So, what is important about Rambach? Well, first he wrote a book called De Sensus Mystica Criterius, which is the mystical sense criteria. And he tried to go beyond what his teacher, August Hermann Frank, that we mentioned in the first half, what his teacher had done and what these earlier theologians have been doing. His goal is to attain greater objectivity in this mystical sense. So he doesn't just want to read Jesus into every story or make every detail into any random theological point someone wants to, though he does think that there is a deeper significance pointing to Jesus quite often in the Old Testament. He doesn't want to do this indiscriminately. As Rombach stated, quote, Many without judgment, depending on certain principles, are led hither and thither, being led by vague conjectures and being destitute of a guide for the way. End quote. So, I want to start with his table of contents for this text, which is something like a methodology statement. As Rombach explains, quote, Besides the literal sense of Scripture, the mystical sense is also given, which, however, is not to be sought everywhere. But avoiding extremes on both sides, throughout both the Old as well as the New Testament, the mystical sense should be investigated in certain classic passages, of which 12 more important ones are reviewed and should be recognized by certain indications which reveal themselves, for which, nevertheless, we do not, in fact, need an extraordinary inspiration of the Holy Spirit if we want to explore the real sense in other passages besides those explained mystically in the New Testament. But, rather, from the example of holy men, certain criteria are to be formed of which many are internal, which reside first in things, things, and their innate character, where four criteria are indicated. Also in words, and their emphasis, where two signs are established. Others are external, where the Holy Spirit reveals elsewhere that something of the mystical sense is present in a certain passage, first explicitly with distinct words, i.e. Old Testament being quoted in the New Testament, and two implicitly, where five modes are reviewed by which one can come to the knowledge of the mystical sense. Criteria are added by which it can be demonstrated that we have achieved the genuine mystical sense of a certain passage. Nevertheless, this whole matter will be confined by nine precautions 
and the discussion is finished with a prayer. End quote. Notice that he finishes with a prayer. Just a personal note, if I tried to send an academic book or even an academic journal article with a concluding prayer, I would be strongly suggested to remove it. That is great for Christian inspiration, but not academic writing. However, remember, he is a pietist, so prayer and Christian faith is super, super important to him. And also, this is a different era, so expectations were different. But back to the important part of the podcast, his methods. He had a whole lot of information in this. If you noticed in the lengthy quote, Rombach does not favor the mystical interpretation over the literal interpretation. So he looks at the literal meaning and then claims that there is an additional one. Not a mystical one that supersedes the literal reading, but that is in addition to it. So he first starts with literal meaning and defines whether it is proper or metaphorical. So proper is something straightforward like David was king in Jerusalem. But metaphorical is literary. So something like Isaiah 36.6 or 2 Kings 18.21, because honestly they're the same verse. Quote, if you rely on the staff of this crushed reed on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. End quote. The first one is just a historical statement. David was king in Jerusalem. Obviously, that is straightforwardly true. But the second one is clearly not literal in that straightforward sense. It is a warning not to rely upon Egypt, because it will pierce your hand, is using an agricultural metaphor to talk about a nation essentially stabbing you in the back. But this is just level one, so these are just literal interpretations, and there are two levels. Now the more important part in our examination of this is the mystical meaning. Both are equally valid, but we're going to spend a lot of time on mystical meanings. So, Rambach claims that early theologians knew about both senses, literal and mystical. He calls them holy men. The Roman Catholic Church calls them doctors of the church. Now, how do we know when there are mystical interpretations and what these mystical things are? Well, this is what Rambach is trying to set limits on and what his intro paragraph was trying to say. He criticizes earlier Jewish and Christian theologians, especially in the first few centuries AD, who saw mystical meanings everywhere. Many people looking for the deeper meanings spin allegories out of every passage, but Rambach claims that only some passages have mystical meanings. However, Rambach criticizes people on the other side who don't find the mystical sense at all, including mentioning Grotius and Leclerc by name, among others who were slightly earlier than he was and his contemporaries. So before we can go deeply into this mystical reading, we have to strike a balance between seeing mystical senses everywhere and denying mystical meanings entirely. They do exist, but not in every passage and not in every way that we want to spin the allegory. Now, I will say that Rambach saw mystical interpretations in the New Testament and gave criteria for discovering these, but as this is an Old Testament podcast, I will try to discuss as little of those as possible. 
In any event, he spent the majority of his time discussing mystical meanings in the Old Testament. First, because he thought it was more common there, and second, because most of his mystical interpretations are used to point to the New Testament and specifically to Jesus Christ. Just like the bronze serpent prefiguring Christ in Numbers 21, Rombach was trying to relate the Old Testament to the New Testament through these deeper interpretations. Some of them are made clear by explicit statements in the New Testament, but some are not. The Numbers 21 interpretation of the bronze serpent is referenced in John 3, so this one is clearly meant to be deeper, at least according to the New Testament, but that doesn't mean there aren't other passages with deeper meanings that are not explained by the New Testament. So, Rombach gives some limits on the types of texts that contain these mystical interpretations. These types of texts include, one, rituals in Mosaic law, two, the histories of important Old Testament characters, three, the chief oracles of ancient Israel, by which God selected Israel from the number of other nations in order to delineate the events of the New Testament church. Four, the chief liberations of Israel from the hand of their enemies. Five, the judgments by which God executed under the old economy, in other words, his way of relating to people, both against degenerate and non-compliant Israel, as well as against enemy peoples. Six, the more excellent and remarkable benefits which God bestowed on the church of the Old Testament, by which the more sublime benefits proper to the new economy were prefigured. Seven, the promises of the good lands. And eight, many oracles of the prophets, especially concerning Judah, Jerusalem, Babel, Egypt, and Edom. And nine, most of the canticles and psalms. So, Rombach has identified what types of literature contain mystical interpretations, but also clearly stated that not all passages have mystical interpretations. He also acknowledges that the clearest examples of mystical passages are interpreted by the New Testament authors. But how do we find a mystical interpretation for a passage that is not clearly treated by the New Testament? For Rombach, the New Testament examples actually hold the key. By examining the divinely inspired writers, an exegete can form rules, quote, from whose presence it can be recognized and with the highest probability decided that in this or that part of scripture, the mystical sense fitting for the divine wisdom and beneficial for our souls is hiding, end quote. Now notice that Rambach does not say you can find 100% certain and clear mystical meanings, but that you can have the highest probability. Something should be said about his humility in this respect. So Rambach sets out his criteria for finding mystical meanings in two ways, internal and external. The external criteria is the most obvious because they're mentions of the passages in the New Testament. So when the New Testament authors state that this text has deeper symbolism, then it should be understood that 
It has deeper symbolism. And some of the texts can have this implicit external criteria where it's not explicitly stated in the New Testament, but implied by the New Testament. Still, a very straightforward way of saying if it is reinterpreted by the later text, then it should be understood as having a deeper mystical significance. The more interesting is the internal criteria. Within the internal criteria, there are criteria found in things and others found in words. You may have heard me emphasize that in my lengthy quote of his table of contents, things versus words. So for the indications from things, one should look for things, quote, not fitting enough for the most high wisdom of God or for the persons of sacred men, or if they are clothed with circumstances so singular and admirable and apt for signifying a more illustrious thing that they draw the mind of the reader, even unwilling and resistant to consider more sublime things, end quote. So then there are four specific criteria under this things form. First, quote, if nothing in the thing occurs which is especially worthy of the divine wisdom and other perfections of God, end quote. So you have to judge if the text follows what we know about God. Rombach references Leviticus 14, 2 through 32, which is about using blood and oil and shaving your head to be cleansed from leprosy. Well, Rombach's question is, what does this say about God? Without a deeper mystical meaning, this is just a ridiculous ceremony that only encourages superstition. Now, Rombach still affirms that this was literally performed and was commanded to be literally performed. But he also thinks that it makes God a god of superstition and silly ceremonies if there isn't something deeper behind it. So criteria one is it's not quite worthy or doesn't align with what we think of as the perfection of God. The second criteria is, quote, if the literal sense contains something unfitting for the persons of holy men, end quote. So, in Judges 14, 1 through 4, Samson's desire for a Philistine woman was not fitting for him as a savior of Israel and as a Nazarite. So, Rambach says that the reader will have a different opinion if he considers that Samson prefigured Jesus Christ, the son of promise, brought forth from a virgin by the power of God who loved the church, which was being gathered from the nations and being united with him through the obedience of faith and of love in a spiritual marriage. So, clearly, it is a similar track as the first one, if someone is regarded as a hero of the Old Testament, he should do good hero things and not shameful, unheroic things. And if he is doing unheroic things, it may point to a deeper meaning rather than the most straightforward literal meaning. Third criteria is surprise. Quote, if events are narrated under the old economy and are clothed with such admirable circumstances 
that they deeply overpower the mind of the reader and inspire thoughts more sublime, end quote. So these are extraordinary events, most basically, like Samson finding honey in a lion. That's again from Judges 14. Or Israel passing through the Red Sea. These are such shocking and miraculous events that they are probably indicating not only the literal significance, but something much deeper than that. The fourth criteria is, quote, if the circumstances of an Old Testament history have such a conspicuous and evident reference to an event of the New Testament that an attentive reader is unable not to think of it repeatedly while reading, except by either closing or averting the eyes with which he observes that very little thing after having exerted himself to pay attention, end quote. This is intended overlap in the presentation of events in Rombach's mind. So the author means for these events to sound similar to the New Testament events, or probably more accurately, the New Testament authors are intended, intentionally modeling their story on these older stories. Modern scholars would see this as a kind of typology, so there are types of Christ in the Old Testament or events that prefigure an event in the life of Jesus. That is the type of thing he is talking about here. So after these four criteria, Rombach then moves to the second kind of internal indication, which is words. So there are two criteria for the words evidence. First, quote, the assertions, or at least some of them, were conceived with such illustrious and magnificent words that they do not entirely square with the subject literally accepted, end quote. So Rombach believes in the full truth of scripture, like the most precise meaning of full truth of scripture. Anything that seems hyperbolic or doesn't fit quite right with the story must be put there by the Holy Spirit to point to a deeper message. For example, Psalm 132.14 talks about Mount Zion in Jerusalem as, quote, This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. End quote. Well, clearly, the temple was destroyed, and honestly, so is the city. So this must mean that it is about the heavenly Jerusalem, thinking Revelation, not the ancient earthly Jerusalem, because it hasn't been around forever. The temple is no longer in existence, and Jerusalem has been sacked a few times. The second criteria for words is that the thing described is clothed with such full and sublime terms so that one cannot understand them in the literal sense without diluting or weakening the meaning. So, Rombach's example is Ezekiel 26.15-28.23, through 28, 23, where all the peoples of the world, all the peoples of the world, will come and mourn over Tyre. If you noticed, all the peoples of the world. According to Rombach, the Holy Spirit must have intended a mystical meaning here because it is too hyperbolic. It weakens the integrity of Scripture and the truth of Scripture if we're just throwing around these exaggerated claims. So, this means that one day, 
there will be a city greater than Tyre in which the characteristics of Tyre could be seen much more clearly and in whose destruction God's providence, justice, and wisdom would be shown to all the ignorant nations. According to Rambach, this is the Roman pontiff, the Pope. The final internal point that Rambach describes is silence. This is exemplified in Melchizedek, whose birth and death wasn't described in Genesis, so then he could be called an eternal king like Jesus in the New Testament book of Hebrews. This one, Rambach didn't make up. Hebrews actually says you are a king forever in the order of Melchizedek, referencing how Melchizedek has no birth and death. He appears on the scene, blesses Abraham, and then disappears. It's not that Genesis said Melchizedek did not die or Melchizedek was not born, but it just wasn't recorded like many other minor characters in Genesis. This is also a legitimate way to find mystical meanings, according to Rambach. When the text is conspicuously silent about something, it may be indicating something deeper behind it, a mystical meaning. So, in addition to these criteria to find the mystical meanings, Rambach does have warnings. He does note that even using these criteria, many people can twist passages to mean something that's out of sync with scripture or out of sync with the literal meaning, and he does give some precautions when using these criteria and when assessing the mystical interpretation. So let me try to wrap this up here. Rambach believed that the Old Testament had a literal meaning and a mystical meaning. He also claimed that these deeper mystical interpretations were not everywhere, but only in certain texts. Most of these point to Christ and agree with the literal sense of the text and the broad theology of the Bible. To find these mystical meanings in a text, internal and external criteria must be sought. The external criteria is pretty easy. If the New Testament uses it in a mystical way, or implicitly seems to indicate it, then it clearly has a mystical meaning. The internal criteria, however, is trickier. These are indications by things and by words. If the text is using words that don't really fit the context, or is making statements that don't seem to fit the character of God or the heroes of the Old Testament, then it is probably an indication that something deeper is intended. So, this is where I will leave us for today. This is a little less source critical and more on interpretation methods than the previous ones, but it is interesting nonetheless. Many of us are probably a little bit uncomfortable in our current situations with these mystical meanings and trying to interpret deep allegories in these ancient stories. But it was common, still is common in some circles, and in many places has transformed into typology studies of finding types of Christ in the Old Testament or types of kingship in the Old Testament or even types of the temple. 
Some have drawn parallels between the Garden of Eden and the temple as mirroring each other in a similar type of temple. I'll leave that to you to decide whether those are convincing arguments or not. I am not a big typology user personally. Anyways, thank you for listening. Please rate this podcast, subscribe to it on whatever platform you are using to listen, and stay tuned in two weeks for our next episode on Johann Jakob Wettstein. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. If you would like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about the Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistics and scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. And again, thanks for listening.